that I would really like the lawyer to, one, manage expectations before they get there. Don't set them up with false hope. You're listening to the Texas Family Law Insiders Podcast, your source for the latest news and trends in family law in the state of Texas. Now here's your host, Attorney Holly Draper. Today, we're excited to welcome Natalie Kaler to the Texas Family Law Insiders Podcast. Natalie is a 1999 graduate of Texas A&M University and a 2002 graduate of South Texas College of Law in Houston. She's the current elected Bosque County Attorney, prosecuting all misdemeanors, child protective services cases, and protective orders for victims of domestic violence. She's held this office since 2009. While in law school, Natalie was an active member of the South Texas Law Review and a participant in the school's nationally recognized moot court program. She served as the Texas Young Lawyers Association president from 2011 to 12 and as a director for the State Bar of Texas. She's a current member of the Texas District and County Attorneys Association Board and the Texas FFA Board of Directors. Her primary practice is rural family law mediation. She mediates five days a week in 12 different counties. And she's often hired because of her knowledge of horse, cattle, farm equipment, and ranch real estate. In her spare time, Natalie enjoys traveling, cooking, and volunteering at Camp John Mark, a camp for special needs children. She's proud to be very involved in her children's activities, especially helping them compete in equestrian and rodeo events. Natalie is the founder of Spirit Christian Girls Retreat, an annual retreat held in Clifton, Texas. She and her husband, Blake, reside on the family ranch in Cranfields Gap. They're members of the First Baptist Church and lead classes at Gap Youth Convention on Wednesday nights. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Um, well, I'm six generations uh, farm and ranch family in original Frisco uh, in Collin County. Um, my parents were there for many years. My grandparents, my great-grandparents, we lived on a farm up there, um, which is now between 720 and 380 there in Collin County. And we bought a ranch in 1984 in Bosque County uh, in Cranfels Gap, Texas, which is about population 281. So it's tiny and I never in a million years thought I would live there in practice, but I wanted to live on the ranch and raise my kids. And when we left Frisco and I got out of law school, I knew that's exactly where I wanted to live um, and practice law. So how would you describe your current practice? So my current practice is uh, I'm the county attorney. So I do um, protective orders, all the CPS cases, um, and advise the um, commissioner's court on civil matters. But I practice family law and have been practicing family law for almost 20 years. And so about six years ago, I went through my own divorce and kind of transitioned my practice into mediation. I knew that I wanted to like help people resolve the situation instead of maybe keeping it going. And my kind of uh, peacemaker personality was suited for that. And so then the word just kind of spread and I started picking up more mediations. And now I do that five days a week, sometimes, well, many times two a day. So a lot. So with being the county attorney in a small county, how much time does that take as compared to your regular practice? Well, and it depends on the county you live in. So mine is a smaller county. So I'm a part-time county attorney, which means I don't get paid a full-time salary to um, do those things. And so I have docket three or four days a month, um, two or three misdemeanor dockets and CPS day one day a month. And then commissioner's court, I'll attend as needed. Um, And so I can kind of schedule those mediations around when I have court. um, And it's a really, it's it's a flexible position. Interesting. Yeah, I'm definitely from 
much bigger areas and can't imagine the county attorney position not being full time and being able right. to continue your private practice on top of that. It's fun. So um, I know you also have a lot of state bar service. Can you tell us about your history with the state bar? Yes, ma'am. I started um, my involvement with Texas Young Lawyers Association through the moot court program. I was a moot quarter at South Texas when I was in law school and loved it. Um, and kind of got involved and met a lot of people that I just loved. Again, being from a rural area, it was it was kind of hard. It was a good way for me to like get out of town and go eat at good restaurants and things that we take for granted when we live in city. Um, but I uh, met so many great people and just kind of worked my way up and knew I wanted to eventually run for president. And I wanted to represent prosecutors um, all over the state because we hadn't had a prosecutor president before. And I wanted to represent small town rural lawyers. And so I was super excited when I was elected president of Texas Young Lawyers in 1112. Um, one of the best experiences of my whole life, just getting to know how the state bar works, the great work that the state bar does that I think um, sometimes gets misconstrued or doesn't people don't know about. And so that was just that service aspect of my career was um, one of the best times of my whole life. I loved all the projects that we got to work on the was able to take my prosecuting background with the protective order guide and a video about teenage drinking and things that I'd used in my everyday life and put it towards public service projects that went out and are still still being used today. One of the projects I'm most proud about is a mental health project that's still being used very, very frequently by TLAP. Um, it was called Breaking the Silence. And that was an idea that I had for a project after losing um, a colleague there in Bosque County to suicide. And so um, I knew that mental health was very important subject we needed to address with lawyers. And so it just kind of makes me beam with pride when I see that that still gets talked about today. So, so what, tell us a little bit more about the mental health project that you, that you did this now part of TLAP. Um, so it's called Breaking the Silence. And we did a series of podcasts before podcasts were really a thing back in 2011. Um, it was, um, basically little modules where you could just talk about suicide or you could talk about depression or just anxiety or career burnout or things of that nature. And we put them all in little um, sections where we could talk about lawyers could go directly to that part and just listen to that. And so over the years, um, presidents that have come after me have expanded that project but that project won an American Bar Association Project of the Year Award. And it's something I was really proud of because, you know, 10 years ago, even uh, Erica Grigg and those at TLAP will tell you, it, there was such a stigma even 10 years ago about talking about your mental health and your profession because you was, would appear weak and you don't want to do that. And so now we're so much more conversive about it. You can talk about it and we're open about it. And it's not a bad thing. It just means it's something that you're dealing with just like, any other health problem that you might have. And so I was, I was excited that we were kind of on the forefront of coming up with that. So today we're here to talk about a little bit different of a topic than that, uh, specifically the unique issues that are involved in rural family law cases. Yes, ma'am. And, you know, I big city girl myself, so I really don't have much knowledge at all about those types of issues. So I'm excited to chat with you today and kind of learn a little bit about that and see how we can help out people who, because I'm sure even in a big city, you may touch on these issues from time to time. Yes, ma'am. So what makes rural family law cases different? Well, in, in rural family law cases, um, we talk more about farm equipment, horses, cattle, 
ranch real estate prices or just real estate prices in general. Now I have, I have a broad mediation practice. So not all of mine are rural. I still, I have cases in Austin. I have cases in Collin County. Sometimes if somebody's word of mouth has spread Dallas lawyers, you know, I have tons of Fort Worth. Um, And so even if they live in town, uh, town being a city, so to speak, they may still own a ranch, you know, down by where we live, or they've, or they've inherited 10 to 12 acres and they don't know the value of the property. And so those are things that I get to talk about. Um, being born and raised on a cattle ranch and my dad being a farmer, I was able to take that background and use my knowledge of those things um, when sometimes the lawyers don't always have that knowledge. And so they kind of count on me to be like, do you know what the going rate is for real estate in Bosque County? Do you know what the going rate is in Hamilton County? Um, and I've kind of expanded my practice. It goes everywhere from Breckenridge and Graham down all the way to Fredericksburg over to San Angelo, Brady. And so I have about 12 counties in that section. And you, it's just people from all walks of life. So when I'm talking about, say, horses, for instance, the horse is worth 50000 because somebody's taken it to the National Finals Rodeo. Well, that's not something that this everyday lawyer that doesn't have these cases is going to know about, but I know the people that ride the horse and I know that it makes it more valuable. And so, you know, it, it's funny, the lawyers that will come to me and say, there's no way that horse is worth 50000 or that cutting horse in Weatherford is worth a hundred. And I'm like, well, the genetics of that horse are da 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 And yes, it is. But I know the background. I know the genetics. I know where these horses have been. I know what it means when you you bring me something and you say it's earned this much or, or this is its sire, or this is its dam. Those are things that I know about um, that the lawyers don't always know about. And so they trust me to figure it out. Now on cattle, I keep up with cattle prices. My um, husband runs a bunch of cattle and he uh, is a rancher. My dad's a rancher. And so um, my background, when whether you own 10 cows on your little place that you're retiring on when you move from Plano or you own 350 head of mama cows, you know, out at your ranch, I check the prices from Oklahoma City, which kind of sets the market. And so I know before I get to mediation what the going rate is for cattle that week. So I can, when you bring your inventory to me and you're saying, you know, I think these cattle, these these 10 head of cattle are only worth $8,000. I can say, oh, no, 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 that's way too high or that's way too low. And it helps the lawyers find some common ground. Um, and they trust me. Do you know what I'm saying? They trust that I've done my homework before I get there because that's what I live and I get to do. Farm equipment, I, I check Ritchie Brothers auction. Um, you know, I've got combines and tractors and and trailers and goosenecks and this and that. And I am able to know, okay, well, Ritchie Brothers auction site the other day said this combine was worth da-da-da-da-da. And it helps the client, I think, feel more at ease if they know that that's my background and they know that um, this isn't just something I just made up, you know, that I, that I've actually put the time in before their mediation to find that stuff out. So when you're normally, when you're seeing clients who have horses, cattle, ranch equipment, do they typically come in with a pretty good idea of what they're actually worth or are they just out in left field when it comes to value? Well, it, this is one one of the tips I would give for for mediation is just to um, manage those expectations and have that research done before you get there. I work with some of the same lawyers two or three times a week. I get to see them. And so they know that a lot of that I'm going to come in with. So if if we're in a hurry and they just book me, 
you know, and they're like, hey, can can you bring the knowledge to the table? Then yes, I will. But it helps me when they've already done that inventory and the client's expectations are managed. But it is kind of funny, Holly, when people will think that like if it's a new person I've worked with and they don't know how much I know about rural issues. And so they put, you know, oh, my this these head of cattle. I had somebody do that the other day. These head of cattle are only worth like, you know, five hundred dollars or, you know, and this horse is only worth a thousand. But I know that they've taken it to a World Series team roping, you know, so I know it's worth 30. Um, so those kind of things we can kind of talk through. Um, but I would prefer if the lawyers would do some of that, you know, preparedness before I get there. Um, but it does help me to strengthen the lawyer's argument with their client to say, hey, Natalie knows this stuff. She's going to help us come up with the best numbers to put on our inventory. So. So do you think people are pretty forthcoming when they, they have the championship course or they have, you know, something that has really good bloodlines? Do they try and hide that? No, um, not usually. Not usually they don't. They usually try to come you know, most of the time horse people know horse people. And it's funny because that's where I got started in my career was in Stephenville, which is the rodeo capital and cowboy capital of Texas. And so it's all these pro rodeo people. And so um, it's funny, barrel racers always think their horses are more, worth more than anything else. And not only that, but those are babies. Do you know what I'm saying? So they make <laughs> a lot more. They're like, they're not taking my baby. And so you can always get more money off a barrel horse with a with a barrel racer because she's going to want to hold on to it because she loves them so much. And so that helps. And then I also do ranch real estate a lot. My mom's a broker. She sells quite a bit of property down where we live. Um, and so the knowledge of that, that's really where we get caught up. It's not so much on the horses, the cattle or farm equipment values. Well, farm equipment ends up tools, you know, that ends up being a kind of a contested issue, but uh, the value of property. And when COVID came, you would have thought that people would have kind of shut down the real estate market down where we live. It was the exact opposite. Everybody wanted to live where we live. Do you know what I'm saying? Now that they can work from home and Zoom and they were like, let me get out of the city and I want to be able to live on this 10 acres or 15 acres or even, you know, bigger places. And my mom's real estate market boomed when she started selling ranches like crazy during COVID. And so that background that I have of ranch real estate or property uh, prices around us has helped my mediation practice too. And that's usually when I get the most dishonesty, I guess, from a client when they're like, well, no, we, you know, that's it, only worth 2000 an acre when right now the going rate around us is 7,500 to 10,500. So it, it's crazy. The um, disparity that can come when I'm doing a mediation like that. So we deal a lot with traditional real estate and traditional neighborhoods, not a lot of land. And it's usually very easy to get any realtor to give you a CMA Right. And kind of get an idea of where it may stand for value. Is it more difficult when you're dealing with ranch real estate? It's harder because we don't have as many appraisers. So we can get a broker's opinion pretty quick. Um, but for trial purposes, if you're going to want a certified appraiser, you know, we've got one that's really great in Stephenville, but you can't all hire him. So, you know, I was I would tell somebody that was looking for a job and they're thinking about going out to appraise property, come to the come down to the country because there's explosive market and we need that. But with that comes the trust by the lawyers of those 
the one guy they know is really good or, or the two people they know in this four or five county area that they know are really good. So it helps us to say, okay, we're going to use this one for mediation and we're going to come and we're all going to stick with their price. And when that kind of homework is done before I get there, it makes my life so much easier. Um, because a lot of times I'm the one that's ending up trying to split the baby, so to speak, and figure out what the median price should be. And if the clients are coming and willing to negotiate, you know, that's just all mediation. But if they're coming and willing to, to acknowledge that, it helps. But if we can get that homework done beforehand and everybody says, you know, oh, so-and-so is the best appraiser around, let's just get him to do it before we get there. You ever see people, you mentioned splitting the baby. Do you see them splitting the ranch where if they have a lot of acreage, instead of getting a value on it, yes. they divvy it up? Yes. I mean, Holly, we have to get creative a lot of times, especially um, when somebody thinks it's worth 20,000 an acre, you know, and you're like, oh man, I got to get this person to be realistic. But with bigger tracks, what helps is we can say, okay, the wife is going to keep the house and this part of the acreage. The husband's going to keep this part of the acreage. Where we run into problems is when there's not a well, there's not septic, there's not electricity. And so say there somebody's getting a raw piece of land with no barns, no improvements. Um, we have to factor that in. And luckily my mom doing so much real estate, then I know the cost of putting in a septic. I know the cost of running electrical lines. I talk to her about that stuff all the time. I talk to her about what is a barn worth? What are these good fences worth? What is a high fence deer place worth compared to a low fence cattle ranch worth? What are the ag exemptions on the property? Um, are they already there? Can they keep them? These are things that I know before I get to mediation that I can talk to the client about that their lawyer may not always know, you know? So it, it helps to be able to be like, okay, if you're going to take this piece of raw land that's next door and you're going to take 30 acres and they're getting 10, but they get the house, then we need to look on this place and go, okay, it's going to cost you 10,000 for septic. It's going to cost you 15 for electricity. And let's build that in when we're doing our negotiation. It helps. So when you're dealing with a lot of mediations in rural counties and, you know, these smaller counties, do you see unique issues related to lawyers being in general practice instead of being more specialized, which we typically see in bigger cities? Yes, most all of them are general practice. Um, you pretty much can't live in a small town and not do some sort of family law. I think a lot of us would like to say, okay, we're, we're not doing, we're only going to take criminal cases or we're only going to take family law cases. Now, now the plaintiff's bar is kind of different. Some of them that small towns, they just do plaintiff's work um, and that's all they choose to do because there's so much discovery and thing that comes along with that. And family law has gotten so much more specialized with our new discovery rules and things that we have to keep up with that many of those lawyers that just do family now, that's all they can focus on. Um, but I would honestly highly recommend to any baby lawyer coming out of school, and I talked about this last week at Prosecutors Conference, give a small town a chance. There's tons of internships. There's tons of programs that, um, you know, I know Baylor Law School and SMU Law School have a rural um, internship program where you can go and get matched with a rural prosecutor's office and they find you a place to live and they help you do this externship. It is it is the best kept secret, in my opinion, because you are immediately getting out there and learning what to do in the courtroom. You're learning a little bit of probate. You're learning a little bit of family law. You're learning a little bit of civil work. And you can kind of 
learn those things from people that want to help you because we are smaller bar when there's only 14 lawyers or so we want to see you succeed we want people to come into our community and thrive and i think it's just kind of the best kept secret in my opinion about learning to be a good lawyer um rather than just jumping out on your own and staying in houston you could go out to some of the surrounding counties and learn you know, go down towards Crystal Beach and Chambers County and learn down there or Liberty or some of those where we really, really need lawyers in these rural areas, West Texas, especially some of the cities that I go into may only have one lawyer in the whole town, you know, and that's, it's like, man, this is a bird's nest. You could have a ton of business if you would just move out here and start helping these underserved communities. And probably a much lower cost of living. Very much. And, and have a really cool old building and stuff like that, you know, on these neat town squares and stuff. It's just kind of that quintessential to kill a mockingbird way that you look at practicing law and you can do that in a small town. It's really neat. So as a mediator, what is your best advice for attorneys for preparing for a successful mediation? I would definitely say managing expectations. I, I don't like to be the deliverer of the bad news all the time. And that's when it's really hard on me when I have to say, this is not your separate property. You were never going to get to keep this. You know, when the lawyer hadn't prepared them for that before they got there because they oversold the case, you know. And so when I get there and I have to kind of clean that up, it's hard on me. And normally um, since since I have been through a divorce and I can kind of get that rapport with the client, even you know, I don't know what it is. Most of the cli- most of the lawyers I've worked with are, have never been divorced. And so I get an immediate rapport with the client and I can visit with them about like, hey, I've been there. I've lived it and I've raised kids and co-parented and done all these things. So that helps to kind of deliver some of those tougher messages. But I would really like the lawyer to one, manage expectations before they get there. Don't set them up with false hope. And two, come prepared. Like it's hard when I'm having to like go and, you know, look at my notes from Oklahoma city or Richie brothers and like figure out all these prices when I just really would like an inventory or a spreadsheet. When I have to create the spreadsheet for you, it makes, it just doesn't utilize our time very well, but I have to do that a lot. I have to come up with the spreadsheet to show an analytical client, look, it's 50-50 on here. Are you seeing this? But it would be a lot easier if their lawyer would do that before they got there to kind of manage those expectations. And I work with some fantastic lawyers in these smaller towns. And a lot of them, I mean, I wish I could hire them to do my Excel spreadsheets. They're so good at it. (laughs) Um, And they've got those accounting brains. And those are the really good ones I like to work with because I can come in and all I do is take their spreadsheet and I can run back and forth in rooms and get it knocked out, you know, really quick. I'm going back to the ranch real estate topic. Whenever we're dealing with conventional real estate and, and, and as part of a divorce, We always have to look at mortgage refinancing, cashing out, those types of things. Are those dealt with similarly in the ranch real estate arena? Yes, ma'am. And a lot of the times it's just uh, buying out the the equity, just like you would on a house, you know, and you always get those people, I want my name off of that. And I want them to refinance that. One of the good things on these larger tracts of land, most of the time that is separate property of the person that came into the marriage. They, or if they've been extremely successful and they've bought 
1,500 acres or something, we can partition that. So then everybody goes their separate ways and there's no exchange of money, which is really, really nice. We, we I, I like those kind of clean cut ones when we can do that. But most of the time we can, you know, you do the same thing, deed to trust a secure assumption, those kind of things to secure um, the debt for the other person. Um, but it's it's a lot easier when I can just, you know, cut it down the middle and figure it out and be done with it that way. There's a lot less paperwork for all the lawyers have to do. So a lot of our, the lawyers that listen to this are often young lawyers looking for advice and things of that nature. So you have gone from being a small town attorney to being very involved in state bar activities. Mm-hmm. How can young lawyers who maybe aren't coming from a big firm or aren't coming from somewhere with attorneys who can help them get plugged in how, what should those attorneys do to get themselves plugged in? Well, what I would do is find a mentor, first of all, wherever you live, whether that's a small town or a big town, you need to find a mentor. That's the one thing I want to tell, especially my baby CPS prosecutors. I've been doing CPS for 16 years. When they just jump out and think, I'm just going to start representing parents and they don't ask for help, it clogs up my docket. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, there's a way you need to go and sit and watch how a CPS case is handled. Every county is different. Regional council can, handles things very different the way than I handle them. Some rural counties, you'll walk in, there'll be regional council, and they do it the same in like 10 different counties. But if you've got the county attorney that has a family law background, that does it, I run a very efficient docket. And so you need to find a mentor in that county or go watch and ask, hey, what does this look like? What am I supposed to do? Once you find that mentor, I think then you can start saying, okay, what are you plugged into? Are you plugged into Dallas Association of Young Lawyers? Are you in Collin County Young Lawyers? How do you get on Texas Young Lawyers Board? Well, what I did, I didn't have anybody in in Meridian, Texas or Stephenville, Texas to tell me how to get involved in Texas Young Lawyers. So I just emailed through the website. I was like, hey, I was a moot quarter. This looks fun. Can I be part of this? And they were like, yes, more the merrier. And so most of the time, don't be scared to jump out there. And most of the time they're going to be like, yes, come on and help us. Just get involved in this little bitty, you know, um, committee for Toys for Tots or something at Dallas Dallas Association of Young Lawyers. That's a fun little thing. Like they need people to help with that. And then you just kind of grow your network. And that is how you can find a mentor too. And so by getting plugged in, I've told so many young lawyers this when I meet them. Just get in the little subcommittee and then it'll start to increase your involvement. And you, it's just so much fun to meet these people and have somebody to call that maybe you're not on the other side of a case with, and you can bounce some things off of them and say, hey, what do you think about this argument? What, what do you think about that argument? I'd also tell them, you know, you've, you've seen it, and I think this is maybe how we connected, but just our Texas Family Law Lawyers page on Facebook. Like, get on there and ask questions, and then message somebody on the side and say, hey, can you help me with this? Or do you know, judge so-and-so I wish more people would call me because I do have such a relationship with all these judges in these, in these 12 counties that I work at. I wish somebody would call me and say, Hey, what do you think? How does judge so-and-so usually do things out there? What do they usually want? And then I can tell them before they get there and you don't embarrass yourself when you go to court. Cause you remember how stressful it was when you were a baby, you didn't know what to do. Uh, And you're like a nervous wreck to go before judge so-and-so, you know, So I would say get a mentor, volunteer for a subcommittee and kind of start getting involved in the community of lawyers around you because it that just helps you tremendously. I think that is all excellent advice. 
even if somebody's in a bigger town, yes, uh, help them get plugged in. So one of the questions that I always ask on the podcast, and you've already given quite a bit of advice, but I'm still going to ask this question anyway, <laughs> is if you could give one piece of advice to young family lawyers, what would it be? Well, other than finding a mentor would be um, to be conscientious and ethical. Um, no client is worth uh, selling your soul for. And I think when we're baby lawyers, we're drinking the Kool-Aid so much about winning and wanting to be successful and all this, but being collegial and being honest and ethical is the most important thing that I think anybody can be um, because that follows you and it's not worth it. You know how emotional it is, Holly, in family law. And I, I did it for, you know, 16 years full time. I used to think I had to listen to every single story and everything my client told me was true. And I was going to go to bat for them and I was going to defend them till the end. And then you get slapped upside the head and you realize like, whoa, they weren't telling me the truth at all. Or that's not the way that that went down. And um, and so you don't want to sell your soul for this client that you're helping with this one issue and ever do anything unethical uh, because you think it's help, helping your client when you're going to have 20 more Sally's or Jane's or Bill's or whoever's coming later. And you need to maintain that relationship with your opposing counsel um, and that ethical reputation so that people respect when you say something and they know that you're telling the truth. I will tell you this, Holly, when I'm in mediation, I know the lawyers I work with that tell the truth. And I know the lawyers that don't tell the truth. And I, I work with them all the time. So I know and I can tell room to room and I can sit there when I'm working on a mediated settlement agreement and tell the lawyer, honestly, on the other side, Hey, this Holly, you can trust her. Like you're not going to have a problem in the decree. She's not going to nitpick it. What she told you that this was what they agreed to. This is what she agreed to. Now there's some lawyers that I'll say, we better tap more in this agreement because they're the ones that nitpick it. And they're the ones that are going to say, I never said that. I never agreed to that. And you don't want to, as a baby lawyer, be that guy. You know, you, you don't want to be that one. You want to be the one that says, I can always call Holly Draper because I know that she's always going to tell the truth and she's going to want to work with me on the next round when we've got that. So always, always maintain your ethical, you know, character because that's just, it's critical. It follows you. I agree a hundred percent. And having other a network of other attorneys who believe the same way and who function that way makes all of our lives so much better. Yes. Don't be difficult just to be difficult either. That's another thing. I, I want to say, I, I see it more when I do big city stuff because small towns where we all have to see each other every day. So you, nobody wants to be the one that's thorn in anybody's side, but don't just make, don't just send out a ton of discovery just to be difficult when you've got literally you know, less than $20,000 worth of assets that you have to divide like that. That's not a effective use of your client's money. And that's not an, you know, I don't believe in billing clients just to bill them. And I don't like to see lawyers that do that. Cause I, I, sometimes I'll work with lawyers and I'm like, why did you do all that? That wasn't even necessary. And so don't be difficult just to be difficult or think you're just being an advocate. Cause that's not an advocate. Our job is to be a counselor. Our job is to get them the best result um, with as little pain in my mind as we can, you know, help them help take some of that emotional stress off of them, not fire them up to keep it going. I, I, I don't like to see that when I go to mediation and I have lawyers that just want to keep picking 
and just be difficult. Just, and it's like, this is not about you. This is about their life. So stop it. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's certain lawyers that we see on a regular basis where as soon as somebody from certain firms gets hired, we know this is going to be a lot more expensive than it has to be. Yeah. There aren't any real ways that we can shut it down because it's, yes. it's allowed under the rules, but we don't. Like mind. being mean is not, that's not advocacy. Do you know what I mean? Being hateful and and running someone through the ringer is not advocacy, in in my opinion. It's just that's just um, for your personal gain, not for the clients. And I I just I hate to see that. Me too. So we're just about out of time, but where can our listeners go if they want to learn more about you? Um, my website is www.kaylerlawfirm.net. Um, my last name is K-O-E-H-L-E-R. So it's kind of uh, complicated, but um, that's where people go to book mediation and make payments and find out more about my background um, and has all my contact information on there and um, would love to to meet some of your listeners if they're ever out this way. I, I enjoy doing big city mediation, so to speak also. Um, so I'm always thrilled when I get to work with Dallas and Fort Worth lawyers and, um, it brings just a different perspective to uh, my practice and we can all get better and learn from each other. And so it's, it's, uh, I like to, to meet as many lawyers around Texas as I have the opportunity to. That sounds great. So thank you so much for joining us today. For our listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, take a second to leave us a review and subscribe so you can enjoy future episodes. The Texas Family Law Insiders Podcast is sponsored by the Draper Law Firm. We help people navigate divorce and child custody cases and handle family law appellate matters. For more information, visit our website at www.draperfirm.com.